Hello, I'm Dr. Sam Hancock of the Emerald Planet and Emerald Planet TV. We come to you on a week-to-week -week basis from Washington, D.C. in the United States as we look around the globe in 144 different nations looking for those thousand best practices, the technology, services, and products that are making a difference as we move through the 21st century. And as we have a planet of 9 billion people by 2038 and possibly 12 to 13 billion by the end of this century, how are we going to be able to take care of all these people on planet Earth? And that's what Emerald Planet's all about. We come to you looking at the solutions, the best practices from around the globe as we create the Emerald Planet. Hello, welcome to the Emerald Planet. We're making a difference as we move through the 21st century. See the long-term impacts of climate change. But we're glad to have you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with us tonight. We have Dr. Lawrence E. Jones. He's the Vice President of the International Programs, the Edison Electric Institute. And Lawrence, it's really fantastic having you back with us because the work you're doing is outstanding and it really does cover the globe. So tell us a little bit about EEI, what is it? So Edison Electric Institute is the trade association that represents all investor-owned utilities in the United States. Uh, they have operations in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, providing electricity for about 220 million Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, we provide public policy leadership as an organization. We also work to make sure we uh, provide strategic business intelligence for our members. And then most importantly, we convene events and conferences to allow them to have dialogue and exchange ideas on where the industry is going. Now looking at the, the international reach you have, there's a number of countries that you deal with, a number of chapters that you have abroad. Why the international aspect of this? I mean, Edison was an American, and, yeah. uh, but you know, his inventions went global. So your outreach now as far as international programs, why is that important? And are you covering the whole globe? We're basically covering the whole globe. So we have about uh, seven international members that have operations in about 90 countries across the globe. Mm -hmm. If you combine our U.S. members as well as international members, the organization members provide about electricity for about 4 billion people around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important because as we know, the, the world is very interconnected. Uh, electricity is becoming more and more used across the world, very important for sustainable development. And I think what's also very important, uh, Sam, is that we, we, we focus on the importance of a a shared global vision in terms of electrifying the world and bringing sustainable development to various parts of the world. So the international program is an integral part of what EEI does and it allows for organizations both in the U.S. and other parts of the world to exchange and share ideas with one another. Yeah. Now looking at the Millennium uh, uh, Sustainable Goals mm -hmm. that we have as far as United Nations is concerned, why are those so important and why is EEI really involved in those and at least three of those uh, well, most important. Yeah, I think the, you know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals is critical because as we know, the planet still has about uh, a billion people who don't have access to electricity, they don't have access to clean water, they don't have access to uh, health. So all of these things are pivotal. And I think from the perspective of EI, what we do in terms of providing access to information for, for expanding the access to electricity, I think is very important. The other thing, why we focus, the other reason why we focus on electricity in terms of sustainable development goals is because everything centers around electricity. 
If you don't have electricity, half of the goals cannot be met. In fact, most of the goals cannot be met. So everything from health, education, uh, industrialization, all of these things center around electricity. And so for us, it's pivotal to get electricity at the forefront of these discussions across the globe. Yeah, and let's not leave this because, you know, uh, water is life. So we have to have water, that's number one. Mm -hmm. But people are saying in the 21st century, electricity or electrical power of any kind, whatever mm -hmm. source it comes from, mm -hmm. is the second major goal that we need to achieve. Mm -hmm. So it's universal. Yes. And how does the EEI help in that? And what leadership role is it taking to make sure that the electricity mm -hmm. is universal? I mean, part of, part of what's happening is that we've recognized that electricity as a global uh, fuel, if you may, is something that is critical not just for modernization of economists, but also for making sure that people have a sustainable living. And the leadership role we play as an organization is making sure we can convene events that allow electric company leaders from across the globe to share best practices. We also work very intimately with regulators and policymakers because we've recognized that nothing is more important than making sure you have the right policy framework. And the public policy work that EEI does, both in the U.S., but also sharing ideas with other organizations around the world, is fundamental to being able to achieve some of these goals. And then lastly, I will talk about the customers. Across the globe, customers, both in the U.S. and other countries, recognize the importance of electricity. And so working to make sure electricity is understood and used in a way that is cleaner increasingly, but also that brings value to our customers across the globe, I think is central to how we achieve a global understanding of uh, sustainable development. Now looking at the uh, the backup generator, that is almost the, the, the national grid in many countries, particularly mm -hmm. on the African continent. Yes. But this is something that most people want to go away because mm -hmm. they're using diesel, a lot yep. of it's very filthy. Uh, fuel. That's correct. Uh, it's quite expensive. Yes. So how are you actually evolving the, the grid, if mm -hmm. you will, and uh, having this uh, universal access to electricity as almost a human right as far as where we're going in the 21st century? And how can we mentally and emotionally get to that point where having access to energy really should be a universal right? Yeah, I think understanding the issue of providing electricity has to be seen from three aspects. One, from a technology standpoint, we have to have a sort of a hybrid approach to how we do go about doing it. So today, across the globe, you have rural electrification is a big issue in many countries. And so you need to consider both the off-grid solutions for rural communities, but also you have to focus on the urban communities where you have huge population centers that need electricity. So you need both off-grid and on-grid solutions in terms of providing electricity. The next thing is affordability. We have to really understand that electricity has to be affordable, but that doesn't mean that it's sort of made affordable to the point where the utilities cannot be able to recover the investments they make. So there's a balance between affordability as well as accessibility. And then lastly is this issue of sustainable development, looking at sustainability. Already across the globe, we understand that power sectors around the world are making significant progress in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also doing things to make sure we're bringing cleaner energy to different parts of the world. So I think those three things, understand the importance of affordability, mm -hmm. making sure that you have accessibility as part of the equation, and then lastly, sustainability, making sure that the, the grid is providing increasingly cleaner energy across the globe. That, I think, is very central to what we do. How are you looking at as far as accessibility? I've been in you know almost 60 developing countries now, mm -hmm. and you can be standing under power lines going across 
you know, villages, maybe even almost uh, lo very large towns mm -hmm. of 100,000 people. Yes. And the line's going right over top, mm -hmm. and people are still using backup generators. Yeah. So looking at accessibility, how are the utilities, utilities that you're working with mm -hmm. actually working with the local governments, but also the local communities, yeah. so that they are realizing access to that power, literally maybe passing right over top of their head? Yeah, I think the issue of accessibility is, is one that has multiple angles or multiple points to consider. I think first of all, we have to make sure accessibility is also affordable. Mm -hmm. And that's where the first conversation starts, right? So what do you do to make it affordable? Well, part of the equation is for a long time across the globe, people have viewed electricity in silo where they thought about just bring a power plant and all of a sudden the lights will come on. Well, I believe going forward, we have to do it in a much more integrated way where you look at the economy, the ability for people to pay for electricity means they have jobs. Mm -hmm. For them to have jobs means you need to have industrialization or some economic development policy, right? And so if you look across the globe today, most countries where you have high levels of electricity, electrification, mm -hmm. is where you have industrialization, you have enough commercial customers and industrial customers, as well as residential customers. In many parts of the developing world, you don't have a strong commercial and industrial sector. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, it becomes difficult for utilities or electric companies to provide electricity at a cost-effective way because if most of your consumers are residential customers, obviously it's going to be difficult to recover all of the investments. So you need mm -hmm. to take an integral approach to how you go about developing the, the resources that's necessary for electricity. And that's where I think we need to focus on as a globe affordability, uh, sustainability, and increasingly looking at the issue of uh, making sure we have the, the right uh, regulatory and policy incentives mm -hmm. in place. Looking at uh, many countries where you have maybe half the population living on $2 or less a day, yes. how does that, how do you address the affordability of that? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even in those informal economies, they are paying for energy. Yes. It may be wood, it may be charcoal, mm -hmm. it may be diesel, maybe a combination of all three of those. Mm -hmm. And those, even in those types of economies, actually expensive vis-a-vis -vis what they make on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. So how do we define affordability in such countries yes. so it makes sense and it makes sense also to the investors yeah. who are actually putting in the infrastructure for that? Well, that's a very, very complicated question in terms of the fact that there are so many moving parts when it comes to mm -hmm. making affordability sort of uh, done in a way that makes sense, right? Now, what I would think is in terms of uh, many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, the real challenge, which is where you have a lot of the access, a lack of access issue, mm -hmm. the real challenge there is that rural development hasn't developed, hasn't gone hand in hand with urban development. And so what is happening is you have a lot of people who are leaving the rural communities, coming to the urban communities, really cannot afford to live in the urban communities, so they end up living in, you know, in slums, they end up living in sort of a subpar sub areas. And that creates some sort of disparity in the system in terms of having so many people in these countries who have moved into the urban communities but cannot afford it. And now the question is, how do you get them to develop the rural community? By doing development in the rural community, you begin to develop the culture of paying your bills. Mm -hmm. You also can use electricity to produce uh, what I would call productive uses in those communities. So for example, agriculture, uh, farming, uh, providing uh, schooling, mm -hmm. using those kinds of uh, off-grid solutions and coming up with new innovative ways of thinking. For example, in certain communities, the issue may not be selling electricity. It may be selling different services that are bundled together where electricity is just part of the equation, right? So, yeah. so I think we need to think constructively, new thinking outside the box, 
And don't assume that what has worked in the OECD countries will automatically work in developing countries. There needs to be new thinking around this whole issue of electrification and accessibility. So it really leads us to distributed energy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have uh, many off-grid opportunities yes. as far as solar, low-flow hydro, uh, can be uh, many other types, mm -hmm. of course. So how do we balance that as far as these large grid centric uh, systems that yeah. we have in North America, mm -hmm. Western Europe, and some parts of Asia yeah. that maybe you know, it's passe and just will not work in some of these countries? Or do you believe actually we need to really stay focused on the grid and bring all these communities along to this concept in every one of these countries? You do, you do need both. And this is the thing I tell people all the time. Oftentimes when people discuss the idea of getting off the grid, what they don't recognize is once you give a consumer one light bulb, mm -hmm. eventually they're going to want two, and they're going to want three. So scalability becomes a key issue. Mm -hmm. So I understand you can small, start small in a rural community, but imagine that those communities will eventually expand. And so you need the grid. The grid is actually important for industrialization. You need the grid for urban communities. If you're looking at, in the next 20, 30 years, an additional 100 million to 300 million people moving into urban communities in Africa, for example, mm -hmm. there is no way you can provide electricity for all of those people just based on off-grid solutions. So you need to think a, a hybrid approach. You need off-grid solutions, but you need grid solutions. And in terms of scaling up electricity access, mm -hmm. it makes actually more sense if you build large centralized systems. However, there needs to be a room to integrate distributed energy resources as well as the large central plants. And there are a lot of experiences being developed right now mm -hmm. in the US, in Europe, where distributed energy resources are coming together with the central power station because you have this huge demand for energy. So it's not an either or proposition, which is what most people argue about. I think you need to have both and have a hybrid mindset in terms of how we develop electricity systems. Hybrid and let it run in tandem. We have exactly. about uh, 20 seconds left. Where do you see EEI going over the next five, 10 or 15 years? I think we, in the next five, 10, 15 years, we're gonna continue to focus on what's important for our members, both in the US and around the world making sure that the issue of affordability is at the forefront, serving our customers, but most of all, making sure we do it in a way that's sustainable for the planet. Yes, we have Dr. Lawrence uh, E. Jones, Vice President, International Programs, Edison and Electric Institute. Thank you for being with us on Emerald Planet TV. Thank you for watching and looking at this uh, concept of how we marry together water, energy, and all the other resources that we need as we move through the 21st century and create the Emerald Planet. And thank you for being with us on the Emerald Planet TV as we come to you on a week-to-week -week basis from Washington, D.C. And I have sitting right with me is Dr. Lawrence C. Jones, Vice President, International Programs at the Edison Electric Institute, EEI. And I think me. it's marvelous what you're doing because the interesting thing that we keep talking about is we have to have water. Yes. But actually, if you don't have power, mm -hmm. in most cases, you really don't have water. Yes. So we're going to be looking at, in this particular show, about this balance between electricity and water. Yeah. So looking at it, EEI, you really keep broadening the outreach, the concepts, mm -hmm and the service that you're bringing to people around the globe. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with this concept of we need to have this balance between electricity and water? Well, 
First of all, as I travel around the world, one of the things I began to notice is that the linkages between water and energy is becoming more and more apparent. Across Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, a lot of people have to travel for miles to get water, mm -hmm. right? But they still don't have electricity. And then the more you think about it, electricity and water, they are linked in a way that I think the going forward, we have to begin to ask ourselves the question, how do we provide power in a way that doesn't consume too much water, but also how do we provide water without consuming too much power? Mm -hmm. So understanding the linkages between the two, I think is very important. And, and, and so for us, really beginning to focus on electricity, mm -hmm. but look at the interactions between electricity and water sector is becoming more and more important across the globe. Now looking at this uh, photograph of the world at night, mm -hmm. and we see this big honking landmass out there, which is Africa, yeah. and we see virtually no lights except for a little bit in, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So this is really a very telling tale as far as where EEI is, working with the electric uh, utilities around the globe. Mm -hmm. Why is it important that we really see more lights, mm -hmm. not wasting energy, yeah but actually showing real development, real people doing real things. So coming back to the, the nexus of water and energy, oftentimes where you see more light, you also have more water, uh -huh. right? This axis is always there. And so if you look at the darkness of Sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to electricity, there's also the lack of, of water. So mm -hmm. I always say there's an energy thirst, there's also a water thirst. Mm -hmm. You have to quench both at the same time. And I think the more we look at sustainable development goals across the world, we have to understand that you have to fix the water problem mm -hmm. as well as the electricity problem because both of them are essential for, for uh, living a, a good life, right? So right. you need both of them. So we, we prioritize both in our thinking, although we still focus on electricity, mm -hmm. we're more and more engaging with folks in the water sector as well because electricity needs water, but more importantly, to have water, you need electricity. Now looking at this, this dichotomy between scarce and abundance, and yes. you see these interlocking wheels, mm -hmm. and that's what you're saying is that we have to go have the water mm -hmm. and electricity mm -hmm. so that we're actually moving beyond scarcity mm -hmm. into abundance. Yes. But people are saying, we already have too many people on planet Earth. We have about 7.5 billion. Mm -hmm. We're going to 9 billion now, they're saying by 2038. Mm -hmm. But yet you're saying we can have abundancy even with this number of people. How can we do that with this balance between energy and water? Well, we have to think outside of the box, first of all, when it comes to finding the, the balance between scarcity and abundance, right? Oftentimes, abundance doesn't have to mean waste. Mm -hmm. Abundance simply means that you, you take Let's advantage. Let's say that again. That's really a key point. Well, abundance doesn't mean waste. Good. Right? Okay. So Great. having abundance simply means that you are using your resources in a much more effective way mm -hmm. that actually creates abundance beyond just the actual resource. So for me, when I see abundance, I look at economic development. Mm -hmm. I don't just see abundance in terms of one resource. I think of it in more holistic terms and so I think going forward we have to understand the interrelationship between having excess or having abundance but also having scarcity the challenge across the globe is where there is huge scarcity there's also abundance in terms of the resource mm -hmm. so how is it that you have all these abundant resources but yet, yet and still you have scarcity isn't that an interesting yeah, I uh, think uh, it conundrum is. right but look at this this image here this is something we're seeing more and more across the globe yeah you know where we have Australia mm. India China, Brazil, mm -hmm. you know, these major nations, they mm -hmm. literally are burning. Yeah. And also we're having, you know, depleting of the aquifers, we're having uh, less rainfall, mm -hmm. uh, or it's, it's actually more harsh, it's more violent mm -hmm. as far as the storms are having. Yeah. So looking at, again, this nexus between energy 
and water. Mm -hmm. How do we start leveling this out so we don't see what we're seeing here as far as this dry riverbed and no water as far as the local populations? Yeah, and part of the challenge there, again, it's about sustainable development from the standpoint of economic development. In a lot of countries where there is a shortage of water, it is not necessarily because there's a shortage of, of natural water, it's because mm -hmm. of precipitation issues as it relates to climate change, but it's also because of deforestation, right? Mm -hmm. In many countries where they've deforested the, the, the agricultural area, you have this issue of drought, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to take a holistic approach to sustainable development. We need to step back and see, how does it all come together from an economic standpoint? Because at the end of the day, we cannot have a world that is sustainable if you, if you have significant amount of people living in poverty, mm -hmm. right? So we have to tackle the issue of poverty, which means you have to create a level playing field so that those who live in rural communities understand that they too have a role to play. And that comes to agriculture, farming, how do they reuse the resources they have? So it's a balancing act. I'm very concerned that sometimes we don't make the right argument around the scarcity and abundance because we think abundance means you shouldn't consume more. Well, abundance means you should optimize what you have to create abundance uh, for, for people to, to, to live with. Now you have this equation, uh, E equals uh, H2O. <laughs> yes. Now what does that actually mean? Well, so that, you know, kudos to a good friend of mine, Professor Gustav Olsen, who sort of helped me to come up with this idea. The idea here is this, right? So energy, just playing on the whole Albert Einstein, E equals MC square, and then E equals H2O. Well, because of the water energy nexus, the more we begin to see the two, the more I think we can think holistically about how we design systems that optimize the water and energy resources. Hence, E equals, H, e equals H2O as opposed to MC squared. That is so clever. I just love it. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought it to Emerald Planet TV. Uh, looking at the, the cities, we're seeing uh, areas across the continent of Africa, mm -hmm. Latin America, Southeast Asia, even yes. in the South Pacific, mm -hmm. where you're seeing more and more of this development going on, the sprawling suburbs, yes. uh, carving up, carving out more of the farmlands, the mm -hmm. forest lands. Mm -hmm. So how do we go about protecting the water, uh, the trees, you know, transpiration, in mm -hmm. other words, that's what really brings more rainfall into mm -hmm. these areas. Mm -hmm. But again, we have this, you know, rapidly expanding population, mm -hmm. just like in the African continent. In mm -hmm. five years, they've gone over a billion people, 1.2 billion. Mm -hmm. And they're saying two billion, maybe by 2025, 2030. Mm -hmm. So how do we balance that so that we have protecting the environment, mm -hmm. having the economy expanded, but also to grow the, the local communities. Yeah, what really impresses me, uh, Dr. Sam, is the fact that we have enough land in Africa, we have enough land across the globe, mm -hmm. but because of urbanization, people are basically fleeing or leaving the rural communities, which could actually be developed. And so one way to, to tackle the issue of urbanization is to ask yourself the question, why are people leaving the rural communities? Well, they're leaving in search of jobs. Well, if that's the case, why don't you then move the jobs to the rural communities, mm -hmm. right? I think technology is gonna have a big impact because in the next five, 10 years, with social media, with mm -hmm. uh, 5G technology, maybe you don't have to move to urban areas to look for work, right? In fact, many of the people who in Sub-Saharan Africa who leave the rural communities, they could be living a vibrant life in a rural community mm -hmm. if they had sustainable agriculture. Mm -hmm. So you need to break the dependency when it comes to agriculture in terms of importing food into Africa, why not grow food in Africa? And
where you will grow the food in the rural communities. So I think the rural communities in Africa could actually become the, the bedrock for feeding Africa as opposed to Africans importing food from al outside the continent. How do you take this energy we're looking at right here, the mm -hmm. young people saying we have to change, mm -hmm. we can't keep destroying the earth, we really need to have this balance between the rural and the urban areas. Mm -hmm. So what is the message we need to be bringing to them? This next generation, yeah. more technology? What, yeah. is it, what is that message we need to get across? I think the message to get across is that there's a shared responsibility. Even the younger generation have a role to play here, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, younger generation in Africa have a different perspective than younger generation in Europe and OECD countries. Mm -hmm. And so those living in, more, in richer countries should ask themselves the question, it's good to protest, it's good to advocate, but what are you doing in your own day-to-day -day living, right? Mm -hmm. And so I always say that, in fact, the young people in Europe who are wealthier could actually support the building of off-grid solutions in rural communities in Africa. It's not enough to just argue and ask for one group of society to do something. I think everyone collectively needs to do their share. And I really admonish young people to, to keep doing what they're doing, but, also, but to also take their own shared responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Now looking at Greta, I mean, she, this, this young lady is a phenom all over the planet. She is. Uh, she got up and shamed, you know, the heads of state, yep. you know, and uh, a cop, mm -hmm. uh, 25, uh, at the United Nations. What, what's her message? And how is that resounding with the young people? And we're, we're talking about this dichotomy, say, between Europe, North America, and Africa. Africa yeah. But she seems to be touching the heartstrings, no matter where youth are. Yeah, she's doing a good. I mean, she's 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 done a good job. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm biased to this, having lived in Sweden for over 15 years. I, I really think what she's doing is great. But I think, again, like I said, we have to be pragmatic about the movement. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that is a you have to advocate for change, but then you also be the change you want to, by setting an example. So mm -hmm. I think what Greta is doing, what she's done, is a great thing in terms of galvanizing the movement, the interest, mm -hmm. but I think remembering the millions of people in Sub-Saharan Africa, the other young people who actually need electricity, mm -hmm. they need water. So the question is, how is the movement that Greta has started going to then be used to help bring electricity to Africa? How is it going to be used to help bring electricity to rural communities, water to rural communities, right? So we have to be much more inclusive in our mm -hmm. thinking about the world as opposed to just saying, well, let's change the world, but have a global perspective and, and see how it, it benefits the youth in, in sub-Saharan Africa But you as look well. at this, the world is burning. The world is and burning. And so we have these images of all these natural disasters. Mm -hmm and we're just about running out of time. Sure. So how do we start addressing the environmental impact mm -hmm. as far as the use of natural resources and how do we put back into the system mm -hmm. so we're expanding the natural resources that mm -hmm. we need as we move towards nine billion people by 2038? I think one and of we the- We gotta be quick because we're almost out of time. Absolutely, so I think what has to happen there is we need to be very clear in terms of the final objective, what we'd like to do. Already across the globe, electric companies are taking their doing their part in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. They've made a lot of targets, but I think behind the targets, we're seeing many other countries in Africa and elsewhere beginning to put in place action plans to, to, make, to make the change happen. The last thing I would say regarding how do we make this all work for everyone is this issue of inclusivity and affordability. We have to make the transition to a new energy system that is affordable, and we have to be very diversified in our perspective in terms of what resources we decide to use. Fantastic, Dr. Lawrence E. Jones, Vice President, International Programs, Edison Electric Institute. Thank you for being with us as we're looking at the globe, youth involvement, taking the nexus of water and energy to the people as we create the Emerald Planet.
Thank you for being with us as we introduce Dr. Lawrence E. Jones. He's the Vice President of the International Programs at Edison Electric Institute. And you're doing phenomenal work. And we were just talking about this intersect between water and power. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing really is about innovation and how we bring in new technologies to address issues, some cases, indigenous populations, mm -hmm. uh, rural areas, but also we have this massive movement of people from the countryside into the cities. Mm -hmm. And we know we need to do something else. Yes. So how is EEI addressing that? And I know this theme you have, new thinking. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit too. Yeah. But looking at EEI, why does it believe we need new thinking? Well, the industry is going through transformation across the globe, right? The electricity sector is changing, and so we have to adapt and we have to adjust mm -hmm. to make sure we continue to do three things, provide affordable, reliable, and cleaner electricity for billions of people across mm -hmm. the globe. And so to do that, we also have to adjust. We at the EER have to change how we do business. We have to change how we work with our members. And our members are embracing the change across the globe. They themselves are beginning to invest in new technology. Mm -hmm. They are also getting more and more engaged in how they engage with their customers, how they engage with other stakeholders. And so it requires a whole, way of, a whole new way of thinking. Uh, electricity, as we know it, uh, has continued to evolve. For the most part, the physical infrastructure has stayed the same. Mm -hmm. But the things around it, the regulation, the policy, the business models, the way people consume electricity, all of these things are changing. So we have to change and we have to bring new thinking to the process. Now looking at this, this uh, slide here as far as question mark, question mark, question mark, there are a lot of questions that we need to deal with. Yes. So looking at EEI, mm -hmm. what some of the questions that you're dealing with with your members mm -hmm. that are on the African continent, mm -hmm. Latin America, across the South Pacific, Asia, mm -hmm. Europe, and of course North America. Yeah, so, so, so one of the <clears throat> things we've noticed is that the, the, the bigger themes are common. What's different is that the issues are local. Mm -hmm. And so the questions, while the global construct of these issues are on everyone's mind, they're addressed from a local perspective. And so the questions we have to deal with is, how do we take an issue that is global mm -hmm. and then contextualize it for someone or utility or electric company in a different region. So yes, they're all looking at issues around say resilience, for example, or they're looking at innovation, but the way they adapt and integrate these ideas will differ. And so we're asking questions, how does it work in one country and how do you take that idea from one country to another country, be it Sub-Saharan Africa trying to learn from the US or Europe or other OECD countries or vice versa. So, so the idea of these questions, I'm a strong believer that before we even start trying to solve a problem, we have to understand the question. And so we focus really on asking the right questions before we try to address the issue. And by doing that, we're seeing better results in terms of how our members are serving uh, their different uh, constituencies around the world, but also how they're engaging with investors, regulators, and policymakers. Slow evolution versus leapfrogging. What's the difference between those two? Yes. And why is that particularly applicable to Africa? It's important because one of the things about leapfrogging, especially in, in the context of energy, yes, we need distributed energy resources, but we have to understand that if you, if you leapfrog just one aspect of the energy system, you forget the other aspects. And by that I mean you can't just leapfrog to technology. You have to leapfrog in terms of the business models, the regulatory models, uh, how you engage with your customers. So I normally talk about leap And also culture plays a huge culture role in all this, Culture plays a huge role because mm -hmm. 
the, the whole idea of creating these infrastructure requires a certain understanding of how they're going to work. Good governance is also very important. Mm -hmm. Making sure you have investments coming in. So leapfrogging to technology but then staying constant with everything else is a formula for failure. So I always say leapfrog by moving everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. Because of that, you have to evolve because you, obviously you can't change everything overnight. Mm -hmm. So you leapfrog, yes, but you have to make sure you evolve at a pace that brings the entire society. In essence, you. you're leapfrogging, but also you're filling in behind that Absolutely. so that you have a very solid base Yes, and you're moving forward with confidence yeah. and not just change for change sake or just movement for movement Because sake. after you leapfrog, you still want to have a sustainable system behind you, right. right? And so you don't want to leapfrog to failure, you have to leapfrog to success. Looking at the new technologies, mm -hmm. this is something that you and I talk about, you know, privately between us, yeah. but we're going to show some slides of this. And let's take each one of these and how that, as far as electricity is mm -hmm. concerned, we see that really as the energy, mm -hmm. not only of the future, but yeah. of the now. And yeah. of course, it, it's been in the past. Yeah. But it's become much more important. So Absolutely. let's look at these different technologies. How do you see it through EEI making a huge difference, even on the African continent mm -hmm. and other places that we typically didn't think about these types of technologies. So as we well know, electrification <laughs> or electricity is fundamental to sustainable development, which means using electricity across the broad, broad economy is something that more and more countries are looking at. So if you take transportation, for example, electric transportation has taken off. Uh, we believe, uh, both at the EI but around the world, that transportation electrification is going to be one of the sectors where you see significant transformation because of electricity. So everything from electric cars, charging station, uh, electric buses, you have electric scooters now, uh, and you see that happening now in India and Sub-Saharan Africa, even China, where you have billions of people in all of those regions who need transportation, you need mobility. Electric mobility is great because what it does, it allows you to also reduce emissions, right? Mm -hmm. So electricity coming to be used instead of using other types of sources that provide more, uh, produce more greenhouse gas is, is, a, is a big thing, let's, right? Let's talk about that right now. We're going to leave the bus up here because sure. this is a good example because okay. people say, look at this massive bus, mm -hmm. they're running it on electricity and we're going to be producing more greenhouse gas emissions out of the, the smokestacks. Yeah. But what's the fundamental difference of that yeah. instead of having a million smokestacks, yeah. i.e. out of the tailpipe of these vehicles, mm -hmm. you have one and you yeah. can scrub it, right? Well, not only and clean the the uh, the carbon out of that. Well, sequester it. You could. Well, the, the thing is, most of the electric buses. <laughs> the whole idea of going electric is that you have uh, almost zero emissions, right? And so, by having electric buses, the source of electricity will be clean. So you could have. Yeah, uh, but in most cases, it's what kind of source? Exactly, right? And so, go. and so that's the transition where you now see more and more utilities around the world, electric companies around the world, moving to putting in place cleaner energy. Mm -hmm. So if you have large amounts of renewable energy coming from across different parts of your country, mm -hmm. and you're using electric vehicles, you're charging the buses, you're re literally you're reducing your carbon footprint, mm -hmm. right? So going electric in terms of transportation is one way to really attack what's happening in a lot of countries around the world. Uh, you know, some of our members in Canada, mm -hmm. in Europe, but also in the U.S. are really looking at fleet electrification. Some of the big companies like Amazon, uh, Google, they're all looking at using, um, not Google, Amazon, Facebook. I mean, a lot of these <coughs> companies are getting into this idea of having a green fleet in their transportation, yeah. electric transportation. And also people on. are looking at having a green fleet right in their own home. Absolutely. moving away from you know any kind of fossil fuel, Absolutely. going to electricity. Absolutely. So looking at these uh, small little heating units, yeah. why are these so important? Well, electric and how is it changing 
the face of what's going on within people's homes. It is changing because electric heating is one way of also reducing your carbon footprint, mm -hmm. right? And so when you start using electric heating, one of the beauties of it is that some of the challenges you've had with other forms of heating go away, right? And so we see a role for electric heating. Yes, you will still uh, use uh, natural gas as, as, as part of your, your heating system. So I, I see a, a hybrid system where uh, around the world, people will, you know, for given the resources they may have, I mean, they will still use uh, natural gas as part of the equation. Or propane. Or, uh, you know, and, and, and electricity. So mm -hmm. it's not the situation that electricity immediately is going to be the, the fuel for, for the entire globe. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a transition, but there'll be a, a place for natural gas in some countries, and there'll be a place for electricity in a lot of countries. Yeah. Now, looking at uh, all the various mixes as far as electricity mm -hmm. and vehicles yes and all that so how is this transition going to happen how fast do you see it happening yeah because it seems like if you look at the country of china mm -hmm. they're saying we're going to have 100 percent electric cars mm -hmm. and that's going to be within the next 15 20 years yeah so that is a huge change it's a huge change i must say different countries are at a different pace of this transition right so and because they're starting from different places so if, if i take the u.s for example what it's interesting to note is that the U.S. investor-owned utility sector uh, over the last uh, couple of years uh, have reduced their greenhouse gas emissions uh, to levels 37% less than what it was in 2005, mm -hmm. right? That's a huge reduction, right? Mm -hmm. Compare right. that with other countries that haven't come that close. So different countries are at different uh, a pace of this transition. And, and the, the positive thing, uh, Dr. Sam, is that everyone recognizes recognize it that it has to happen right mm -hmm. the question is at so what this pace? is really a universal feeling and all oh, the research and absolutely. all the comments coming in absolutely and even votes that are going on within government correct? well absolutely i mean people are making the right investments the other thing we haven't talked about is the role of investors right so we have this idea of uh, of you know wall street or london stock exchange or different investors group around the world they're all now sensitive to the fact that your operations has to be sustainable, which means you have to look at your emissions. And in a lot of com companies around the world, a lot of EI member companies have made uh, targets, have set targets in terms of the reduction of their greenhouse gas emissions. And, and um, action is happening. Uh, we need to do a better job in telling the story, which is why I'm here right. to tell that story so that people can understand that a lot is happening to really sort of uh, clean up uh, the overall uh, environment but it's not just the electricity sector. It has to happen across sectors, transportation, mm -hmm. agriculture, uh, industrial sector. All the sectors have to play their role. Okay, we got about 30 seconds left. Looking at this complexity of this chart, let's draw out of that what is really important, what are we seeing here, and how do you see the change happening around the globe yeah. as far as moving away from fossil fuels, using electricity more yeah. and more, yeah. and the mix of everything. Everything has to be integrated. So you have to find a, a methodology where you can integrate both off-grid solutions great. as well as uh, central power station. And so integrated approach to making it all work together is where we're headed. Okay, so you feel this is really the wave of the future? Yes, integrated. And it's it just like the Internet of Things. Internet yeah. of Things, Internet of Energy. Okay, thank you. Lawrence Jones, uh, Vice President, International Programs, EEI. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being with us as we're looking at all this new change as far as energy is concerned, the sources of the energy, the impact on the environment, and how it helps you as a consumer as we create the Emerald Planet.
Thank you. And as we're looking around the world and how we're going to address the issues as far as water, power, and to clean the environment over these uh, next 20, 30 years as we move towards 2050, how are we going to be able to do all this? And this gentleman sitting right in front of me, this is Dr. Lawrence E. Jones, Vice President, International Programs at the Edison Electric Institute. And you've really been thinking about this for a long time, Lawrence. You've been working in the industry. But this whole thing about the smart things everywhere. Mm -hmm. So what does that really mean? Smart things everywhere and everything. Yeah. Well, you know, increasingly across the globe, we are seeing that uh, technology is being <coughs> embedded in everything we have, right? We have sensors, we have measurement systems. I mean, everywhere you go, you're being measured. Everything is being measured, which is great. I mean, more information that helps us make better decisions. Just like your Fitbit, right? On Just your like the Fitbit, right? It has, allows you to know more about what's happening. So mm -hmm. more information is important. But also, what do you do with that information, right? And so information, everything's been measured, sensors all over the place. Uh, I've been working on a book now for some time uh, entitled Sensing <coughs> Africa. Mm -hmm. And my, my, my thesis is pretty simple, is that the more you can gather information about earth systems, man-made systems, uh, and humans, uh, the better we can make decisions. So sensing everything is a way to start thinking about how do we make more informed decisions based on data, based on facts, as opposed to based on you know, emotions and other kinds of things. So uh, that's the wave of the world. I think as we move into the 21st century, the second decade now, starting 2020, mm -hmm. we're gonna see this idea of information coming together with things like artificial intelligence. All of these things will help us make better decisions, which will hopefully make us live in a better world. And so I think sensing everything means data from everywhere, means everything is gonna be intelligent and smart. Um, hopefully that will make us smarter. Well, looking at living in the bubble, and so we've got uh, eight bubbles here that we're looking at as far mm -hmm. as industry priorities. Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna leave this up for a little bit because okay. I think these are really important mm -hmm. where we're headed, uh, you know, as we go towards 2050. Yeah. Uh, a planet with 9 billion people, now they're saying by 2037. Mm -hmm. So what are you seeing as far as EEI and how does EEI fit within, around, through each of these eight bubbles? So, so the bubbles up there, these bubbles basically reflect <coughs> the priorities of EEI, uh, both in the U.S., but also our members across the globe. And so mm -hmm. as we look at these things, everything from clean energy to resilience to cybersecurity uh, and, and everything else, workforce development, uh, infrastructure being smarter, all of these things are critical because the energy system now is so complex globally that we have to attack all of these different issues in a holistic way. And so mm -hmm. from a prioritization standpoint, what EI does is we look at these issues through the lens of our members in different countries. So if you take, for example, clean energy, the approach in the U.S. will be different from the approach in Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. But what is important is that the topic, clean energy, is on everyone's radar. The same thing goes to resilience, mm -hmm. uh, wildfires. You have wildfires occurring in, or bushfires they call in Australia. Mm -hmm. You have wildfires in, 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 in Portugal. You have wildfires in the U.S., but they've all been addressed differently. Right. We try, from an EI <coughs> perspective, to find what's common. So all of these issues, whilst they may be global in, in scale, in terms of how they're happening, they're local in context. And so these priorities we see for 2020, they're gonna to continue to move on. So every year, EI identify the priorities for the year, but most of these priorities carry on because they're not solved over one year. They are yeah. a continuum that keeps moving forward. Yeah, and we're talking about 2020, not the year 2020, but no, no, really the, 20, the decade exactly. of the exactly. 2020s. Yeah. 
And that's very important because yeah. we have 10 years, in essence, to try to get this right. To get a lot and, of things right. And, and the whole thing about it, we're looking at all these alternatives mm -hmm. as far as the, the energy mix yeah. that you have out there. Yeah. Uh, actually, all of these relate directly back to electricity. Mm -hmm. So how is EEI involved when you go from uh, hydro to solar to wind to uh, nuclear? Mm -hmm. Many people saying, take nuclear off the table. Yeah. Many countries now are saying, you can't take nuclear off the table mm -hmm. if you want to re really meet your sustainable Absolutely. development goals. Yeah. So looking at this, how do you balance what we see here mm -hmm. and also you know, dozens and hundreds of other technologies that we're not looking at in this slide? Well, I think there are two things. One is it's, it's sort of the immediacy of understanding that we need to provide affordable, reliable energy for everyone. And so keeping that in mind, affordability is key. So all of the resources we have mm -hmm. from a diversity standpoint, they're brought to the table, making sure that we're working continuously to make the fleet of energy sources cleaner as we move forward. Which means that it's not about taking things off the table, it's making sure that you're optimizing what you have on the table. And if something on the table is not sort of a viable for a certain region or country, mm -hmm. that's why we see differences. When you travel around the world, some countries, they're on a transition to clean energy, but they have a different trajectory, they have a different timeline. What's important is that as you look at these different resources, Diversity of supply is very, very important, mm -hmm. and, and, and that is key. So nuclear is part of the mix, as we've seen from different reports across the globe. Uh, we see parts of the world building new nuclear, mm -hmm. other parts don't. So the end of the day is everyone, we should respect the diversity of ideas mm -hmm. as well as the respect the diversity of available resources. Yeah, and uh, it's all about innovation and about how innovation. to do things better yep. than what we have ever done it in the past. Absolutely. But looking at cybersecurity, I uh. mean, this is really, <laughs> The, the 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 heart of where we're going in this internet of things because yeah. everything was just like you know put your refrigerator there and yeah. your your uh, dishwasher and your lawnmower and all these other things yeah. and they said we can't protect all that yeah so how are we going to do that and again still keep this internet of things again this balance as far as where electricity is allowing people to go yeah new ways new invention mm -hmm. and uh, new style of living yeah. Well, I think, you know, cybersecurity is a reality that we have to cope with. And, and one of the things I always say is that cybersecurity is one of the many risks we're going to be dealing with for the, in the, 20, the, 20, you know, the 20s, the mm -hmm. 2020s, right? And, and so one of the things we've been doing around the world, EI, is to make sure we can share best practices. Obviously, uh, cybersecurity also requires you having the, work, the, the right workforce, mm -hmm. uh, which is not always easy to find. So developing the right talent pool that will provide that but also working with governments, right? So for example, in the US, uh, we have a very robust collaboration between uh, the utility, the power utility sector mm -hmm. and various entities within the government to make sure that information sharing is done in the right way. In other countries, they have different approach, but I think across the globe, EI member companies are working very, very closely with their the local governments in mm -hmm. their respective countries, but also sharing ideas on, on how you go about protecting the system, both from a physical standpoint, but also one thing that's important, Dr. Sam, is educating your employees. And this right. is another place where a lot of companies are spending time because part of the issue is the first and one of the most reliable threat may actually <laughs> come from someone working in your organization. Right. So right. making sure you develop, one thing we have with EI, we call it the culture mm -hmm. of security, mm -hmm. where people are beginning to do a self-assessment as an organization. Where are we in being mm -hmm. able to and do this? And allow all the employees to assess themselves. Well, eventually, as as you're absolutely. opening you know, the, the floodgates to the company. Yeah, how you behave. Yeah. You're keeping them Absolutely, that culture mindset is very important.
this whole thing about uh, experience, customers, how do we bring the customers into this whole thing? Mm -hmm. And how important is the customer to innovation, resiliency, mm -hmm. sustainability, reliability? Yes. How do they fit into that total mix? Yeah. So it's a benefit to the long-term viability as mm -hmm. far as energy is concerned, yeah. but also how they use and not waste yes. and not abuse yeah. energy. I think customer experience mm -hmm. is so central to the future of the electricity and the future of the energy system. How people experience energy is much more complex than how they experience other resources mm -hmm. or other products because mm -hmm. for most people, energy is lights on, lights <coughs> off. That's the simplest way to look at it, right? right. Now, how do you get them to look beyond it seen as just a switch? Well, it's because of the services that energy actually enabled. If you think about all the things that, is, that are enabled by electricity, people will begin to appreciate it, right? Also, in terms of how you engage with the customer, today a lot of customers, they are digitized, right? They're using the iPads, right. the iPhones, right? So in terms of communicating with the customer, respecting their time, mm -hmm. making sure that when you communicate with the customer, for example, if you have an Oddish, in, we're in uh, Washington, D.C. today, if you have an Oddish, uh, the utility should inform you ahead of time using predictive analytics to say in the next hour or so your lights will be back on. Giving customers that active information that they can have as they go about planning, mm -hmm. even though there's an outage, but letting them know when you predict it's going to be coming back online, that's how you start building the customer mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. The same thing well, with also the it's, it's trust. It's The trust. fact is, is we're giving all this over to our utilities. Yep. We're really giving our safety. Yep. We're giving all of our data. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, nobody realizes that we're going to be able to protect ourselves from, yeah. you know, the Internet of Things. Yeah. But at the same time is that we need to make them part of that, that whole thing. Yeah. But looking at the, the electric meter, this yeah. is telling us much more today than it's ever told in the past. Absolutely. What so, is it telling? So, so the meter <coughs> that's being shown on the screen is one of those old-fashioned meters. Mm -hmm. I put that there because now we have smarter meters than this, but yet and still, that meter has a lot of information. What's different today is that the information in that meter can easily be accessed by the customer. So customers now, because of having smart meters, they can get a better understanding of their energy use, which they couldn't do in the past, right? So the old meter sort of kept the customer in the blind about what they were doing themselves, see the meter as a Fitbit of the grid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Looking at uh, you know where we're going as far as now short term long term, mm -hmm. how does that relate to EEI? But more importantly, how does that relate to this the uh, energy that we're going to be having yep. for the future over yep. the next 20, 30 years yep. as we go towards twenty fifty? Yep. And how do we look at what is truly short term mm -hmm. and what is truly long term? So one of the things I'll say to be <coughs> short and, and succinct is that infrastructure takes time. Energy infrastructure, they're long-lived assets. On the other hand, digital infrastructure, they're short-lived assets. Mm -hmm. So how you balance the fact that as we move to a much more digitized society, we still need physical assets that have to be there for a long time. So understanding the, the long-term and the short-term aspect of infrastructure will help us to design regulation policy business models because at the end of the day, how you invest in those in infrastructure requires you to have an understanding of how long you're gonna have them available. So the long-term, short-term piece is very important. It's also critical in terms of how we serve our customers. We've got about 15 seconds, new thinking. New thinking. Why do we need to have new thinking and where is that gonna take us? New
as we go towards 2050. We've got about 10 seconds. New thing is going to take us where I believe <coughs> customers are going because the customers are thinking anew because we're getting a lot of inf influences from other sectors, and so we have to think new how we serve our customers. It's fantastic. Dr. Lauren C. Jones, Vice President, International Programs, Edison Electric Institute. Dr. Sam Hancock, the President, Executive Director of Emerald Planet, and the Executive Producer, Creator, and the host as far as the Emerald Planet TV. Thank you for being with us as we create the Emerald Planet.